When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we talk prairie grouse with the North American Grouse Partnership. Welcome back to the show for episode number 116. Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. If you haven't done it yet, check out the new offline mapping system in Onyx. It's been completely revamped. It's even easier to use than it was before. It's faster. It's more reliable. The team over at Onyx is constantly working to improve the app and user interface. Know where you stand with Onyx. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by CZ USA Shotguns. Shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind. From the Bob White and Sharptail side-by-sides to the Wing Shooter Elite and Upland Ultralight over and unders. CZ USA has a shotgun for you. They've got pumps. They've got semi-autos. Check them out at cz-usa.com. And by Gumleaf USA. High-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots. Head over to gumleafusa.com and use the promo code PUP10 to save 10% on your next pair of boots. And by Dogtra Callers. For over 30 years, Dogtra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Head over to dogtra.com to learn more. And by ESP, Electronic Shooters Protection, Custom Fit, Digital hearing protection, hear what you want to hear, block out what you don't want to hear, a.k.a. gunshots. 
That's electronic shooters protection at ESPAmerica.com. And by Trinity Kennels, home of the Epignol Breton, French Brittany Spaniels from Champion Bloodlines, field tested, family approved for over 30 years. To learn more about Trinity Kennels, check out episode number 88 of the Project Upland podcast with Jeff and Josh Ryder. That's trinitykennels.org. And by Dakota 283 Kennels, unparalleled protection, one piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Head over to dakota283.com and use the promo code PU. One zero to save 10% on your next kennel purchase from Dakota 283. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Jason S. Jason shared last week's episode of the podcast. Thank you, Jason. Project Upland t-shirt headed your way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. You can do that by leaving us a rating, leave the podcast a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, everybody. I just returned from a hunting trip to North Dakota with my buddy Tyler Webster. Some other friends of mine were out there. We had a great time. As always, the hunting was productive. The weather was great, all things considered. Had a blast and still riding the high of that hunting trip. I thought it would be a great time to share an interview with you that I conducted with two gentlemen from the North American Grouse Partnership who primarily focus on the prairie grouse species. This is a conversation that we conducted, I think, back in July already, but it's no less relevant today than it was then. We're going to talk all things prairie grouse, habitat, conservation, and, of course, we mix in a little bird hunting as well. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast of the North American Grouse Partnership, Ted Cook and John Hoffler. And we're ready to go. Gentlemen, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I've got two guests on from the North American Grouse Partnership, an organization that I I would say that I'm familiar with it, but I'm very much looking forward to learning a whole lot more about it today. And before we jump into that, I'd like to introduce our two guests. So, Ted, why don't we start with you? Introduce yourself briefly. Tell us what you do for North American Grouse Partnership. Well, thank uh, Nick. So thanks for having us uh, here and. My name is Ted Cook. I'm the executive director of the North American Grouse Partnership. Uh, I've worked on grouse conservation specifically for about nine years now. Uh, I used to do it on behalf of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, working on sage grouse in the Great Basin and lesser prairie chickens uh, in the southwestern Great Plains. And I retired from the service, and uh, Grouse Partnership was kind enough to bring me on to continue helping in that vein, specifically with lesser prairie chickens. Um, I like to say you know, lesser prairie chickens are uh, doing better than heath hens, which are extinct, or Atwater's prairie chickens, which are functionally extinct, but worse than all the other grouse. So uh, that's really been a big focus for me and the Grouse Partnership lately. John, how about you? Yeah, John Hoffler. I'm uh, president of the North American Grouse Partnership. Uh, I'm also the executive director of the Ecosystem Management Research Institute. And so those those two activities have, have meshed together pretty well, uh, past projects that that the uh, Emory, as we call the Ecosystem Management Research Institute, have been involved in, have included uh, helping develop the range-wide plan for lesser prairie chickens and developing the uh, grassland conservation plan for prairie grouse. Uh, both of those were, well, the, the grassland conservation plan was done uh, in conjunction with the North American Grouse Partnership. Whereas the uh, the lesser prairie chicken work was done with the states involved in the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, so I've had uh, activities going on with with grouse for a lot of years. Excellent, and obviously the name implies North American Grouse Partnership. It implies a certain geography to the organization, but I'm gathering you know the focus is somewhat on prairie grouse, plains grouse, is there, is there a, a core area or something more centralized other than just North America? Well, the Grouse Partnership is uh, concerned with all 12 species of, of North American grouse, uh, but we do have a focus. Uh, we, we've decided that our effectiveness is greatest where uh, we can really apply our, our skill set and our current abilities in that 
we've decided that prairie grouse, specifically lessers and greater prairie chickens, sharp-tailed grouse, and as an extension of those sage grouse, are the species that we can have the most effectiveness with right now. Makes sense. And obviously I'm I'm quite familiar with organizations like the Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society, and there there really isn't an organization, you know, there are I know there are state sharp tailed grouse societies. We've got one in Minnesota and Wisconsin and there's a lot of a lot of organizations that of course do great work for these species, but they don't necessarily have their own flagship organization like some other upland bird species. So I can see where focusing on that would would make sense ted where are you located so i'm in garden valley idaho right now um i actually grew up in connecticut uh dreamed of living and working in the west as a biologist and here i am busily uh, living the dream <laughs> so we raised our kids in boise i uh, lived in reno worked in nevada for a while on sage grouse and then albuquerque uh, working on lesser prairie chickens and then back up here uh to garden valley idaho an hour north of boise Okay. John, I don't think I missed it. Where are you located? I'm located in Sealy Lake, Montana. So, okay. Uh, a great location. I look out at the from my office at the at the Swan Range of Mountains. It's the western boundary of the Bob Marshall Wilderness. So it's a rough location to have to work out of. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it. <laughs> well, upland bird conservation and hunting oftentimes are intertwined, which I think is ultimately the reason why the two of you find yourselves on the Project Upland podcast, which is technically a hunting podcast. But that said, we we certainly do our fair share of conversing about conservation because it's, of course, important for the species that my listeners and everybody that follows along with the Project Upland community they love to pursue are the two of you bird hunters, Ted. Yep, absolutely. In fact, uh, my yellow lab may interject herself without warning at some point. But uh, yeah, I love hunting upland birds. In fact, the first uh, birds my yellow lab ever fetched four years ago were sage grouse. No kidding. Uh, that I shot in Nevada. So, uh, and I love duck hunting, love upland bird hunting. I shot my first sharpies just a couple of years and years ago in Montana, near uh, Excellent. east of where John is. Did you have did you have early exposure to hunting? Was that something that you took up later in life? How did that come about for you? You, you know, it's so funny because uh, no is the short answer. I <laughs> uh, I grew up catching frogs in a swamp in my backyard until a subdivision filled in the swamp and I had no more frogs to catch. Then I'd ride my bike three miles in the dark to go fishing. I'd get my buddies to go with me once they wouldn't go again and I couldn't understand why. And it wasn't until I was 40 years old that my sister-in-law helped me realize that I was the strange one, you know, riding my bike three <laughs> miles in the dark. So uh, when I turned 18, I thought, I want to start hunting. So I put myself through Hunter's Ed in Connecticut and went out and shot a pheasant on a wildlife management area in Connecticut. Shortly after that, moved west, and uh, my, my biggest passion is bow hunting elk. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I did not have... My dad was a scoutmaster in Boy Scouts and was very supportive of all of my outdoor interests, but I had no mentorship when it came to fishing or hunting in my life it was all kind of homegrown right early early attachment to the outdoors obviously kind of led to a life you know of of conservation and working with natural resources so you can see the connection there but never too late to get into hunting is it no and you know you learn uh, about all the money hunters and anglers put into conservation each year you know over a billion dollars just in Pittman robertson and dingle johnson funds annually more so by far than any other group of americans and so yeah, we had talk about hunters being the original conservationists. You go back to Theodore Roosevelt, you know, and New York Zoological Society saving bison from extinction, you know, and Roosevelt, of course, is a huge hunter. Uh, and so I think we follow in their footsteps. Now, unfortunately, like, we're, we continue to lose opportunities to hunt prairie grouse of all kinds. In fact, lesser prairie chickens right now, I don't think you can hunt them anywhere. Uh, which is really unfortunate, and we need to get gain back the opportunity to hunt lesser prairie chickens and maintain and expand the opportunity to hunt other prairie grouse as well because I think as soon as people stop caring, as soon as we, we those states now have lost the ability to spend Dingle Johnson money on lesser prairie chickens because they're no longer a species that can be hunted, well, we just lose a big source of conservation dollars there. So it's really important to keep hunters and hunting in the game of prairie grouse conservation, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. John, how about you? Has, has hunting been a part of your life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
bird hunting is, is uh, both my wife and I are avid bird hunters. We currently have three bird dogs, two Weimaraners and a Poodle Pointer, and uh, have had a lot of other bird dogs in the past. Um, we, uh, we hunt all kinds of upland birds. Um, out here in the western part of, of Montana, we've got uh, ruffs, uh, blue or dusky grouse, and uh, uh, spruce grouse, and then we can uh, just go east in Montana and pick up pheasants, shark tails, huns, uh, and so we do all of those, as well as waterfowl hunting and, and big game hunting. So, yep. Excellent. Yeah, you're you're in a good location as far as variety goes. You can kind of you got access to a lot of species there. That's nice. Yep, there is. <laughs> when when did hunting become a part of your life? Was it early? Uh, no, kind of like uh, Ted. I I grew up uh, doing outdoor activities, but wasn't really uh, none of my family hunted. Uh, but I started hunting when I was in grad school uh, with some other grad students, and uh, uh, then uh, expanded it out from there. I um, my first uh, real work position uh, was as a faculty member at Michigan State University and uh, um, got involved in doing a, a lot of rough grouse hunting in Michigan and, in fact, doing research on them there, too. Um, and so really expanded a lot of my uh, hunting while I was in Michigan and just continued it uh, throughout my career after that. What kind of research were you doing on rough grouse in Michigan back then? Well, we actually, I started out my first project, uh, worked with uh, Gordon Gullion. Um, Excellent. Yeah, uh, we were just trying to characterize uh, uh, drumming locations and characteristics um, throughout the southern area of Michigan, uh, the northern lower part of Michigan, uh, yep. looking at how and when grouse responded to different kinds of management treatments. Um, we did some work looking at... Uh, grouse foods and uh, how aspen buds provided food for, for uh, rough grouse and, and factors that influenced that, different species of aspen and so forth. Um, so we did a lot of year, number of years of, of research on grouse there. Excellent. For, for the listeners, I, I don't know that Gordon Gullion's come up much. He's, he's familiar because he did a lot of work close to where I'm at in Duluth, Minnesota, but he's, I would call him certainly a, a famous grouse researcher, and he's unfortunately no longer with us. He would have been a good one to have on the Project Upton podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now we have one of his intellectual progeny. That's pretty good. Yeah, I would say, yeah, next, next best thing. That's pretty cool. What was it like working with Gordon? Um. Well, he was, he was a fascinating individual. You know, he had such a knowledge of, of grouse and he was always, uh, able and willing to tell you stories and relate information. Um, only got to work with him a couple of years, um, and, uh, uh then continued work uh, a lot with the Rough Grouse Society at, at that time, uh, along with Michigan, uh, De- uh, Department of Natural Resources, the Wildlife Division there. Sure. Yep. You mentioned you've got Weimariners and a Poodle Pointer. Have, have there, and you, you said you had some other dogs. Have there been other breeds? What what led you to settling on those three at the moment? Um, well, I've, I've been a Brittany person for a lot of years. But, uh, okay. Um, my, my first dog was one that I actually raised my hand at the wrong time at a Rough Grouse Society banquet. And <laughs> uh, uh after prodding from some of my grad students at that point, and I went home with an English setter puppy. Uh, <laughs> and that dog was an amazing hunting dog, um, but it was uh, a very big runner. Um, my grad students used to say that uh, they would get on their running shoes when they came hunting with me, and we would often be hunting in one county, and Bones would be hunting in the next county. <laughs> um, and so from, from there, I switched over to, to Brittany's um, and had had a, quite a few excellent Brittany's over the years. But after moving out here um, and living in Montana, most of the Brittany's you find out here are coming from a field trial background. And they tend to be fairly big running dogs. And I'm now living in wolf country, and I just... Didn't like a dog that was running out there quite as far as a lot of the Britneys like to, and so a Poodle Pointer seemed like a good uh, a good compromise with an extremely uh, hard hunting dog, but one that typically 
um, stayed a bit closer than, uh, than a lot of the great meets would. Sure. Yeah, I will definitely say that when I made my first and only trip this point up until this point out to Montana in 2018, my my perception of what a Brittany was changed when I hunted with some some Montana Britneys. Uh, 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 I consider my friend now, Brandon Moss. I uh, I went out and hunted with him, and his dogs were uh, they ran big, and it was I just I'd never seen a Brittany like that. But exactly what you're talking about, John. Uh, so you can find Britneys that'll hunt a course at all different, uh, but the ones yeah. out here tend to be more of the, the larger range. Well, that's one of the things I'm interested in with uh, Project Upland. I keep reading all the uh, articles about different breeds of dogs because that's uh, in the next year or so I'll probably be picking up an Upland bird dog of some type. I got to figure out what the right recipe is for me. Yeah, well, you should pick up you should pick up a copy of uh, Craig Koshik's book, Pointing Dogs. That's uh, that's pretty. Uh, hmm. That's kind of like the all inclusive book there. Okay, but definitely uh, that will be that will be interesting. Always fun talking talking dog breeds and and uh there's there's lots of them out there they all do things a little bit differently but i think that's kind of why why we love it well let's let's circle back a little bit to north american grouse partnership we're definitely going to dive into some of these specific issues and challenges and opportunities and i want to cover some of that stuff but i want to get a little bit more kind of one-on-one on the organization now do you guys give me an idea of how the organization works operates sure i can take a shot at that um Grouse Partnership is a membership organization. Uh, we have a number of members. We encourage membership and uh, really appreciate our members. But we made a decision a number of years ago that rather than trying to be like, for example, Pheasants Forever with, with a very large number of members and a major membership yeah. program, uh, that we weren't getting enough members to really justify having a major membership program. We, it was, frankly... To really uh, entice uh, a lot of members and the numbers we were getting, it was going to be costing us more to, to spend the membership programs than we could be getting back from the actual memberships. So sure. while we, we like to have members and we encourage members, we decided to shift more of our focus. We, we still try and keep our members engaged, and we have an, an annual now publication, uh, one that comes out each fall that we're sending to our members uh, to provide them a lot of information. Um, but we backed off of sort of the more intensive membership program. And now we switched more of our focus to try and trying to get funding from various sources that allow us to do more of our work in the policy and management arena where we think we can have the most effectiveness in uh, trying to improve uh, the status of grouse and grouse habitat. Got it. I heard mention of a number of different species, and I want to try to see if we can cover a few of these and maybe hit on a high level what are the challenges or, or and or the opportunities for some of these. Ted, I know that prairie chickens have been something that you know, you're focusing on, specializing in based on your background experience. Let's start with the very basics. Give me an idea of, because I hear prairie chicken and you mentioned a number of different species of prairie chicken, and I've heard greater and lesser, and there was another one that you mentioned, but could you kind of give me an outline of where those species, what they are, which where they historically have or had been, and just what the prairie chicken landscape looks like? Yeah, that's, that'd be great. Thanks. Um, so as John mentioned, we're, we're focusing more on prairie grouse. We think of them as four different species when we add sage grouse in as a, quote, prairie grouse, but... Uh, you know, more like a prairie grouse than a forest grouse, for sure. Yep. But uh, so counting sage grouse, then we also have sharp-tailed grouse, greater prairie chickens, and lesser prairie chickens are four species that the North American Grouse Partnership really looks at. John, in particular, has been providing leadership with key states and state agencies on the greater prairie chickens and sharp-tails. My background is with sage grouse and um, lesser prairie chickens. So what I'd said earlier... Uh, I say it kind of tongue-in-cheek for those that know grouse. Um, I say lesser prairie chickens are doing better than heath hens and Atwater's prairie chickens. And and the, the sad joke of that is heath hens have been extinct for nearly a century. It was Its closest relative was the greater prairie chicken, and it occurred all the way out to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts uh, before, that's I think, where the last bird was found before that species went extinct. That's the heath hen. I actually got to see one. I was in the uh, 
uh, Smithsonian Museum of Natural History got to actually see a heath hen specimen there a couple years back. It's fun. Uh, and then Atwater's prairie chicken is another prairie chicken, you know, closely related to graders. They're found down along the Texas coast on the Texas plains. And I describe those as functionally extinct. Uh, we're able to maintain that species genes and actual individuals of that species in captivity. And we continue to try to reestablish wild populations. Uh, but it's very restoring prairie grouse populations is not easy. It's, it's remarkably tricky. Uh, it's nothing like dumping a bunch of brook trout in a mountain lake. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So, um, and so lesser prairie chickens, you know, they're, they're not extinct. They're not functionally extinct, but they're not far behind, you know, the outwaters and, you know, working their way towards functional extinction. And the reason is habitat loss and fragmentation. So all these prairie grouse really represent different segments of prairie ecosystems throughout North America, right? So you got sage grouse on the western kind of sagebrush plains prairies. Lesser prairie chickens are southern Great Plains. Atwater's prairie chickens, coastal Texas plain. Graders and sharpies, kind of the, the, the bulk of the of uh, the Great uh, the Great Plains in the central part of the country. Mm-hmm. Heath hens were the eastward eastern extension of that. So that's maybe a broad overview. And I'm going to pause because John knows this stuff better than me. John, anything to add to that or did we do okay there? Well, I, yeah, and I think we can describe them in terms of some of their, the prairie ecosystems that they're associated with. And the uh, lesser prairie chickens were, were a species that was adapted largely to the sand sage and, uh, and uh, shinnery oak uh, ecosystems of the southwest. And greater prairie chickens are more, were more associated with some of the tall grass uh, and, and the western extent of the tall grass uh, prairies, and then the sharp tails are um, more associated with the northern mixed grass prairies. And so there's there are those kind of uh, habitat differences that the three species have had adapted to. Um, there's been some movements uh, of their ranges um, as some of those ecosystems have shifted around uh, or been lost, uh, particularly. You know, some of the tall grass systems that have so much of that's been converted to agriculture. And we've, as we've seen differences with fire and grazing effects as well, uh, we've seen some shifts in distributions. So the lessers are, as, as Ted has indicated, the most at risk right now. The graders uh, are still doing okay in some places, but we've seen tremendous declines in them. They used to be all back through the, the tall grass prairies, but now, for example, there's a a very small remnant population in Illinois. I think you can probably name almost all the individuals of that population. And, hmm. and uh, you know, a small population in Wisconsin and uh, uh, another small population in Iowa, a few more in Missouri, some hanging on in Minnesota, um, a small population in North Dakota. And then they're doing pretty well in South Dakota and Nebraska and Kansas and a little bit down in Oklahoma. But their range is definitely... Uh, much more restricted than it ever was historically. Sharpies, of course, are still doing fairly well through uh, a lot of their northern mixed grass prairie range. And, and so for, for all of us upland hunters, you know, when we think about the Great Plains or prairie ecosystems, you think about an era where you had, you know, 60 million bison and unbroken, or, you know, the sea of grass, you know, the, the Great Plains, um, prairie schooners, right, <laughs> sailing across the sea of the Great Plains. Um, but today, when you think of it, you know, you probably think of cornfields, right? Stuff like that. So it's not rocks and ice. It's not pretty for people to go backpacking. Um, it doesn't have, you know, iconic species like grizzly bears or wolves or many bald eagles. Uh, and so, uh, and, and it's really been the breadbasket of America too, right? So it's like, hey, you know, Great Plains are going to grow food for us and we'll go play in the Rocky Mountains or in the, you know, back east or on the oceans, you know, that sort of thing. So so really, uh, prairie grouse are a product of that kind of neglect in our confer- conservation infrastructure. And so that's why we're here. And, and it really goes back to the formation of the North American Grouse Partnership, uh, which happened 20 years ago, about 20 and a half years ago now, uh, in the basement of a house of the gentleman by the name of Tom Cade. Tom Cade founded the Peregrine Fund many years ago uh, through Cornell University and uh, along with many other tremendous conservationists and organizations and agencies, saved 
peregrine falcons from extinction. Well, 20 and a half years ago, peregrine falcons were removed from the endangered species list. And that happened in Boise, Idaho, at then what was the world, where the World Center for Birds of Prey is currently sited. That's where Tom spent his years uh, conserving raptors. Well, peregrine falcons off the endangered species list, let's celebrate, that's great. Well, the next day in his basement, he and his colleagues looked at each other and said, prairie grouse are doing poorly, let's turn our attention to that. And that's where the Grouse Partnership was formed. Ever since then, we've been trying to get traction on conserving prairie grouse. And it's tough because, like I say, it's not a, it's not a sexy, iconic group of birds or in, the, in a landscape that brings visions of you know, people, places where people want to visit. And so that's the challenge we're attempting to meet today. It's interesting. You know, I, I have this idea about a lot of upland birds, which would include all the grouse that you're talking about, is they are, you know, they're cryptic, they're secretive, they're definitely a part of the landscape. But if you don't, if you don't go looking for them, you're not necessarily going to see them. So it's, again, it's pretty obvious that, you know, they're not the big moose or the white-tailed deer that we see all over the place. So people have, I think, the general public and people have a different relationship with them. And that probably lends itself to why hunters are oftentimes the biggest advocates for these birds because you have that deep, deep connection with the birds. I mean, it's very logical. Exactly. And that's that, That's where we try to gain a lot of energy and traction from and why we're glad to be on uh, with you today. Nick. Yeah. But the exception to that, of course, is their breeding displays. That All of these yes. prairie grouse species yeah. have some pretty spectacular breeding displays, but a relatively few number of people take advantage of, of going out and finding opportunities to observe them. While we, we can promote that, and there are, you know, and there have been festivals around, uh, well, Lesser Prairie Chicken, for example, uh, festivals in certain places where they, where you have enough of them and people can go out and view them in their displays in the spring. And it's, it's a pretty exciting uh, thing to see, those, the males displaying on the legs and doing their dancing and strutting and so forth. But, but it's a, a limited audience that gets up at four in the morning to go out and watch them. Right. Are the, are the prairie grouse, are they defined and or maybe the better word would be classified by their lecking behavior? I don't think of it that way, okay. but good question. Yeah, yeah. They each have a slightly different um, lecking behavior, but uh, I, I don't believe that that's used as, as any kind of classification criteria. Okay. I have yet to be on a sharp tail lek at four in the morning, but it's definitely on my bucket list. I have some, I really have just been made aware of the opportunities that I have to see and witness sharp tails in Minnesota and Wisconsin. It was just something that, you know, I never thought of prior to really getting, I guess, diving deep into upland hunting and just learning more about it. And I interviewed the folks from Wisconsin sharp tail grouse society. And now I've, I realized that some of this, these barrens habitats are right in my neck of the woods. And it's now I just have this newfound appreciation for it. And, you know, very unique as far as habitat goes when we're, you generally think of a sea of trees up here, which, which we certainly have a lot of, but grouse are, as we know, they're, they're an adaptable species and they make use of these unique habitats kind of all across their ranges. I'm also familiar with the prairie chickens that we have in Wisconsin. And John, you touched on, I was going to ask you, because I knew that there's still a limited hunting season for prairie chickens in Minnesota. And so that is obviously the greater prairie chicken. And you mentioned that they have some, I know some people that have not hunted them, but they've seen them in Wisconsin. Why is it that why is it that that population, what's, what is right about that area of Wisconsin? It, and this is assuming you know anything about that area, but why can they survive there? And then I want to get into these huge tracts of, of prairie and what these birds ultimately need. Yeah, I'm, I'm not real familiar with the Wisconsin uh, population, okay. but um, all of those uh, remnant eastern uh, populations are places where there are, are still some remnant examples of tall grass prairie. Um, and that they can be maintained through management practices, fire or whatever, and that there's just enough grassland left there to support a small population. But a lot of those are right on that edge of, uh, you know, all, all it's going to take is one good uh, natural disaster of some sort, and they're likely to, to, be, to be gone. So right. we're looking hard at ways to how do we help expand those out. But 
the problem is once you've lost that tall grass prairie, it's often because of conversion to agriculture or, or other conditions that are, uh, makes it pretty tough to, particularly uh, economically, to convert it back to the, the native prairies that were there. And, and I know nothing about this population, but I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to start with this. We refer to prairie grouse as landscape scale species. Yeah. They need large chunks of prairie. And so whatever's going on in Wisconsin, that's part of the equation, I'm sure of it. Maybe some of your listeners can comment and yeah. educate us. But, uh, you know, I, I'm gonna, I, like I said, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that there's, you know, large contiguous chunks of prairie, at least enough, yes. left still for them to hang on and still have a hunting season. That's great news. I mean, that's exciting to hear. I'm glad to hear that. That's, yeah, there, they are doing there's, something there's right. no hunting no hunting season on the Wisconsin birds. And those, I would say, oh. again, based on my knowledge, they kind of truly are sort of isolated. Whereas, you know, Minnesota, the prairie chickens are okay. in the northwest, which is that's where kind of the forest gives out and transitions to prairie. Yeah. There is a very limited hunting season in northwest Minnesota. I haven't done it. I know some folks that have. But, uh, yeah, again, interesting. Obviously, something is going right with that with that property. And it's 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 a property that's set aside, and it's the prairie chickens are there, and people are aware of it. So something uh, something is right about that area. And I'll be, I would be curious to learn about that area if how much of a role fire still plays. Yeah, yep. Because frankly, what's maintained a lot of these grasslands before us Europeans ever showed up was fire. Yep. And in fact, one of the bigger threats to lesser prairie chicken all the way on the other side of the Great Plains in the southwest is a lack of fire allowing you know, cedar or juniper invasion. That's another big, that's kind of a landscape scale thing there. The other landscape scale things are power lines, wind turbines, oil rigs, th- vertical structures that stick up. Prairie grouse don't like them. Yeah, the story of fire is another one that's it's quite logical. Fire was here for a long time, and it a lot of these birds adapted with fire and big fires. And, of course, we come along, we don't like fires because they're destructive. So we, we learn how to fight them, we learn how to put them out. And now I feel like we're, you know, fast forward, we're realizing, boy, this this component of these ecosystems is incredibly important. And while we can mimic fire with you know, mechanical cuttings and that sort of thing or, or things like that, but you can't always, you can't replace fire in, in, in a sense. And I'm curious uh, on these, on these prairie grouse, are there ways that we can effectively replicate fire to us, to us an extent that is acceptable to the birds? Or are there some birds that without fire, there won't be any birds? Cause I know that's a big component of the barren's habitat in Wisconsin and sharp-tailed grouse. I think you can, you can somewhat, replace fire with other management practices. Because uh, certainly we have populations in areas that really don't have a lot of fire occurring. But it okay. probably is always more marginal habitat. And one of the things I think we really n- need to be focusing on is in, for these species is to try to make sure we have a full system of, of high-quality areas, really high-quality habitat in large enough blocks that uh, when we have bad years, whether it's drought or, or uh, really bad breeding seasons or something like that, you still have some really high-quality habitat that will sustain a portion of the population in those areas where they can still do fairly well even in the, in the rough years. And what we have too often is a whole lot of more marginal habitat. And fire is a key component, I think, of that. If you really want to have high-quality habitat for, for some of these species, uh, some fire needs to be a component of their habitat management. Circling around, I guess, to the landscape level impact and increasing the size and scale of some of these areas that these birds inhabit, knowing that the larger the area of habitat that these birds have available to them, more than likely the better off they're going to be. How? What are the tools that we have? What does? What can North American Grouse Partnership do to try to increase connectivity between areas and expand some of these areas and resources that the birds have available to them? What, what can we do? Great, great question. And, and this is, this is it, right? So um, there's already a lot of great conservation work being done out there first by private landowners themselves. We know many private landowners, some are on our board who work hard to protect prairie grouse. Uh, second state agencies have programs aimed directly at doing this. They have their state wildlife action plans that identify these priorities and pursue them. We have federal agencies that do that as well. 
The challenge is there's often not an, a comprehensive enough approach to achieve the kind of landscape scale outcomes you need. So, it, it, but the, by far the the biggest tool we have in the toolbox is farm bill programs because most prairie grouse habitat is privately owned. And thank goodness, farm bill programs, many of them are designed specifically to conserve uh, native grasslands. So you've got CRP and then you've got um, uh, EQIP and other programs run by NRCS to, uh, that are designed to help these grouse. What the Grouse Partnership is trying to do right now, particularly in lesser prairie chicken country, is to focus these programs strategically in precisely the right areas. Because what currently happens when NRCS implements conservation, they say, hey, here's an entire county. Who wants to sign up to do good things? And they get people self-selecting. Some of them are right where you want them to be, and some of them are 30 miles away from the nearest prairie chicken. And, you know, NRCS, they're, they're a nationwide organization. Yep. They don't have, they don't design their programs to be that specific. And so right now what the Grouse Partnership is doing is working with other valued partners uh, like uh, Pheasants Forever and Nature Conservancy and others to try to put together a, a, a grant application to the Natural Resources Conservation Service to get funding to implement conservation in strategic focused manners, uh, manner, not just in this county here in western Kansas, but in these parts of this county. Uh, and where we go knocking on the doors of the right people who have the habitat, who probably care a lot. If they still have it, that's probably because they value it. Yep. And so instead of waiting for people to come to us, we'll knock on their doors and say, hey, how can we work with you to reward what you're doing and do more of it? And by the way, let's go talk to your neighbor and, and stitch this all together to create these you know, 50,000 acre tracks kind of minimum to try to preserve prairie grass into the future. Right. Yeah, and that, I, I know I'm familiar you know, enough with, with upland bird conservation. I mean, it's not ne unique necessarily to prairie grouse, but the privatization, the parcelization of landscapes, I mean, we talk about the same thing when we talk about forests and getting forest management on private lands. And a lot of times that takes an organization like North American Grouse Partnership to kind of fill in that gap and say, we've got work going on here. We could win-win if we could get neighbors A, B, and C to jump on. And so yeah. that's that was – I was curious if that was one of the ways that it's working. It sounds like that is definitely an effective method for you guys. Yeah, yeah. So we've got the Farm Bill tool. It's been around for a long time. We need to apply it more effectively, strategically, in a focused way. Yeah. It does good things, but chickens are still going down. Sure. So, Something's got to change, and that's our that's our idea. What about the public land side of things? Is that is it just not as prevalent in the areas that you're working in, or is are there things happening there too? There's not as much. It's certainly a, a lot of the, the range of these uh, prairie grouse, ninety some percent or more private lands. Where there are some okay. federal lands, uh, for example, some of the national grasslands and such, they can play a big role in in providing. Uh, one or more of these kind of uh, important high-quality areas. But they're just so few and far between and scattered about that uh, we can start look with them and try and then look out from them and say, where else can we encourage private landowners to provide high-quality habitat? And so that's, that's some of our efforts with the lesser prairie chicken and with the greater prairie chicken and sharp tails. How do we get uh, the resources we need to really develop and maintain some high-quality areas strategically located across the uh, range of these species. One of the things that, that we definitely need is more funding. The problem is for, for habitat for these species, we're competing with a lot of other economic factors, whether it's agriculture or energy development, and uh, you know, landowners need income from their land. And so we need to find ways where we can provide landowners with enough of an economic return in exchange for their help in providing habitat for these species that uh, it makes sense for them economically to be part of the solution. That was going to be my next question, just knowing that, of course, economics are a huge driver of almost everything that goes on in this world. And But there's also there's an inherent value to wildlife, and oftentimes landowners have a deep connection with their land and they value wildlife. Oh, I saw the yellow lab. <laughs> 
dog on screen. That's, that's always a plus on the project Dublin podcast. Um, they have a connection to wildlife. And I, I guess my, my question will be, you know, oftentimes good conservation is kind of, it closes the gap between economics and that value that people have for wildlife. And the way that you guys see it, the conservation, of course, we could always use more funding and more resources. That would be great. But do you find yourself creating a lot of win-wins in, in that you know, connect a landowner with the right resources, they get the wildlife, everybody, everybody wins. I mean, do you find yourselves able to accomplish those kinds of scenarios? Sometimes. Uh, and that's what you, and that's what you always look for are uh, yeah. those landowners that with just a little bit uh, of help and maybe a little more expertise and some suggestions uh, and they have the ability to uh, make some minor adjustments to their management programs and they really like what they see as the result, improved grasslands, uh, often better productivity of their, of their particularly ranching for these species, ranching operations and the like. So those are the great, the great solutions when you can find them. The challenge is, though, that when we look and say we want 25 or 50,000 acre blocks of high quality habitat, that usually means working with uh, a number of landowners. Or if an average uh, rancher maybe is 5,000 acres in an area, well, we're talking about patching together at least 10 landowners that all would then share that same vision. And the challenge is that, you know, not all of those landowners are always in the same position. Some may have kids going off to college and they have more economic needs here and there. And, and so finding ways to, uh, to make it, uh, more economically advantageous for them to be part of the, this win-win solution that you talk about is, is one of the things we're looking at. And that's, that's one of our, our bigger challenges is, uh, how do we get those resources directed into the places where they need to be? in order to really engage uh, a large number of these landowners in relatively big blocks. This may very well be geographically or species-specific, but I'd be curious if we could at least hit on, just to give people kind of so they can visualize this in their mind, what are some of those things, when we get to on-the-ground actual work, what are some of those things that a landowner might do or not do to improve said habitat? It's uh, pretty straightforward. Native grasses, no tall structures. Okay, that's my sim. That's the that's yeah. the yeah. Cliff Notes version. But John can fill in some of those blanks. Yeah. Well, certainly some some of the easiest ones that, that really are some of those win win opportunities are, as Ted had mentioned previously, on, on some of the range, particularly uh, for some of the lesser prairie chicken, and certainly with with greater prairie chickens, the invasion of uh, eastern red cedar into a lot of their areas ruins the habitat for the birds reduces a lot of the grazing opportunities. Uh, and so, uh, and, and because of this lack of fire that we talked about, so where we can get in and thin those out and get some fire back in those areas, that, that's a win-win for both the, the uh, landowners if they're in the ranching uh, business and the birds. Other practices are just uh, uh, applying good, good grazing practices a lot of landowners are doing that. Others can use some help and better understanding how to adjust their grazing practices to get the, the grass and the residual grass cover after a, a grazing season that uh, a lot of these uh, prairie grouse species need going into the next breeding season if they're going to do well. And then, as we've mentioned, if we can get fire in selected places, that's a some places, uh, landowners are, are used to the use of fire and are receptive to it. In other places, it just hasn't become part of their culture, and it's a, a bigger lift to, to get them to recognize the benefits of it and, and certainly dealing with the, the threats of runaway fire is always a concern. Yeah. I just recently read a great article on the 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 invasion of eastern red cedar i was i was totally unfamiliar it was in the pheasants forever magazine i don't recall which issue but it was within the last year or so and um definitely more educated on that topic very interesting again just areas that used to be kind of wide open these cedar trees have crept in and as we've talked about on this podcast prairie grouse don't like that mm-hmm. one of the other challenges too is is the uh not all grasses are not all grasslands are are suitable habitat and particularly and when we see some of the expansion of, of some of the non-native 
uh, particularly cool season grasses. Some of the bromes and uh, uh, Kentucky bluegrass and some of these other species that have, have come into areas and taken over the, the native grasses, certainly those grasslands are better than a lot of other things that could be out there, but they just don't provide the high quality habitat for, for the grouse species and, and many other prairie dependent uh, uh, wildlife species that the good mix of native grasses for a site would provide. So getting landowners to work towards getting back the native species that we desire out there is, is another uh, place with some good opportunities, uh, but some real challenges because some of those changes are, are hard to produce. I will say full disclosure, my only knowledge about what I'm going to ask you guys about comes from a, a mediator podcast that I listened to, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, but the American Prairie Reserve, and I bring that up only to, to just ask if you're familiar with it, if there's anything to say about it within the context of our conversation. I just bring it up because it's being talked about as a large, expansive piece of prairie, and so I'd be curious if that does relative at all to our conversation. I certainly think it is. Um, I'm not an expert on it, but I am. Uh, I have read about it. I'm familiar with it. I I, the last two years, have applied to, to try and get on their uh, buffalo hunt. They give out a limited number of, uh, <laughs> of uh, opportunities for that. Um, haven't been Just so you can go yet. scout it for prairie grouse. Exactly, yeah. Um, but I, I think it's rather intriguing, to, and, and it's along the lines of what we've been talking about, trying to get a large tract of functional grassland. And certainly if they provided that there, it would provide... Uh, great habitat for sharp-tailed grouse and, and just a variety of other uh, grassland-dependent species. So I think it has uh, some real opportunities. It's, it, of course, has some local resistance uh, from some of the ranching community in the area because they uh, they view some potential conflicts with their um, future operations. Uh, but I I think it, it really looks at a, a great opportunity to uh, restore some some critical conditions that we, critical habitat that we that we need out there. Uh, so I'm I'm excited about what the prospects of it might be, um, and it's something that, that perhaps the the North American Grouse Partnership should be looking into more. We have not linked up uh, directly with that organization as yet, but I think from a grouse habitat standpoint, it offers a a lot of real opportunities. Yeah, this is a great example of. Making a choice, Grouse Partnership, we're a very small organization. Uh, you're talking to uh, its entire staff here on the podcast right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, the entire paid staff, let me put it that way. Uh, and so when we look at this, it's a, it's a great question because uh, what's going on up there in the northern Great Plains is exciting, as John mentioned, you know, potentially exciting, or I don't know much about it either. Um, and that kind of thing is not happening in the southern Great Plains and it kind of shows, right? Because lesser prairie chickens are much more against the ropes, which is why the Grouse Partnership's focusing its energy there. So, you know, speaking as uh, the executive director for the Grouse Partnership, part of me is torn. I, I want to learn more about these folks, partner more with them, but I've only got so much time. And I feel like, well, if they've got that, I better focus over here. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but it's, uh, the, 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 I think in general, the kinds of ideas that I hear about their efforts to conserve prairies are sound, sound great. One of the things the, the Grouse Partnership uh, also does is we are the, the fiscal um, sponsor or, or holdings for what's called the uh, Prairie Grouse Technical Council. It's a meeting that's held every two years that brings together uh, prairie grouse researchers and managers uh, and uh, spends a couple of days getting everybody updated on the latest and greatest findings. We just had one last uh, last fall and had a, had a good meeting down in Oklahoma. The next one is going to be in Montana um, a year from this fall in, in 2021. And one of the things we've talked about is having a field trip to go uh, with that group to the American Prairie Preserve and, and meet with their folks cool. so that uh, more of the, the prairie grouse community can have a better understanding of what they're doing and where they're going with their program. So question regarding, again, this, this could end up being species specific if we, if we need to go that route, but 
research is obviously a critical component to understanding the effects and the impacts on birds. And, you know, our, our entire our conversation has been really centered on habitat. And that's obviously probably the most critical component to the success or failure of these species to continue to survive and thrive. Are there particular research needs that we really need to know, or, or do we feel like we're more in a situation where we know what these birds need? It's more about trying to navigate the challenges in, in making that happen. I, I can take a shot at that, and Ted can certainly jump in as well, but uh, I, there's a lot we don't know about these species. For example, for lessers, uh, we really have a very basic understanding of the impact of tall structures on the, these birds. There's some studies that have definitely shown uh, they are sensitive to large structures. Uh, greater prairie chickens, there's been some research related to that, and, and there's been a few conflicting results in some of the findings. And so we, we need to, to learn more about uh, what are some of the impacts of such things as energy development on these birds. Um, I think we understand fairly well their basic habitat requirements, large expanses of good grass and, and so forth. Um, but a lot of the other kinds of questions, there's, there's a tremendous amount more we could learn from them. And I would say that, that sharp tails have probably received the least amount of uh, research. They're still doing fairly well. So people aren't as concerned about it. They haven't put the money into sure. uh, understanding as much about it. Um, but research is a, is a big component. Not only research, but I would say monitoring is another, and whether you consider that research or not. But for many of these birds, we don't really know a lot about their numbers and distributions, and, and we don't have the monitoring of how they're doing necessarily from year to year. Um, so we don't know always what's happening with effects of different kind of weather patterns or other things. And so there's there's a lot we could certainly learn uh, that would help us do a lot better job of managing managing them with additional monitoring or research. Yeah, so what I'll add to that, this is an opportunity to tell one of my favorite professional jokes. So I'm, I'm a, trained as a scientist, I'm a biologist, and um, I always love to ask the question, how many biologists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, I need more data. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the point is, on the one hand, as a scientist, there's an infinite variety of questions that I want to learn more about when it comes to prairie grouse. Yep. There truly is. I mean, it's endlessly fascinating, right? And and I think there's a lot more research that we could do. John just touches the tip of the iceberg. On the other hand, when it comes to conservation needs, research is uh, on my list of the top 10 needs we have for conservation. Research is number 11. Now, actually, monitoring might make it up to... 10 or 9 or 8, because that, that uh, it informs the, the management part. But a lot of times, uh, my experience, my 30 years as an endangered species biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, we might get into a situation of conflict when it comes to conserving a rare species. And there will always be someone there to say, you know what, we shouldn't act until we have more data. Let's, let's not do anything now because we need to learn more. That's almost always the wrong answer. Yeah. And so we really both are important, right? Where there's more research needs and, and particularly monitoring needs. And we know more than enough right now to know that the main threats to prairie grouse across North America are habitat loss and fragmentation. And so yeah. let's get busy on that. Now, what, what better research would do is help us be even more strategic and focused about what do we do where. John mentioned, you know, native grasses versus other grass species. I mean, that you know, that, that's a, a riddle that we haven't fully figured out yet that would really benefit from more research. But but we can't let that stop us from acting because um, clearly, you know, we, we know that habitat loss and fragmentation is the, the big thing. So right. anyway, thanks for my chance to tell my, my joke about <laughs> people like me. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. A little dose of humor on the Project Up podcast is always welcome, Ted. <laughs> is, there any, is there any more nuance to just given your experience with prairie chicken? And, I, and again, I know that's, that's a, an area of focus for you. Is there any more nuance to that conversation? Or is it, is it safe to say that we should leave the Project Upland audience listeners with the thought that habitat loss and fragmentation is the main concern that we have for all these prairie grouse species? 
Well, it, it's the place to leave the conversation for now because it's by far the biggest threat. And each year it's getting worse. And not just for lessers, it's just, you know, for all, for all four prairie grouse species. And so, yes, it's as simple as that for me for now. Can you dive deeper? Are there other factors? You know, are there more research needs? Yes, amen, absolutely. Yep. And if we don't figure this one out now, if we don't stop the loss and fragmentation of grouse habitat now, all those other things aren't going to matter. So, I, John, I don't know what you think. No, I, I think you're right on target there, Ted, with the habitat loss and fragmentation. Um, the only thing I would add to that is there are a lot of efforts going on by agencies, state and federal agencies, a lot of organizations to do grassland uh, restoration, uh, grouse habitat improvement. Um, but one of our challenges is um, their disparate efforts, as this is being identified by a current discussion going on about producing a grassland roadmap for conservation by a whole bunch of partners. And that's one of our challenges, too, I think, is, is getting better communication among all sorts of conservationists out there and see if we can't. They're all doing great stuff, but it still isn't producing, at the end of the day, what we really need is that unfragmented, high-quality habitat. So finding ways that we can pull all of these efforts together, uh, I think, is really important um, and is a, an equal challenge to... Uh, some of the other things that have been mentioned is uh, because we, we have limited opportunities for all these groups to, to come together and share that, that same focused effort of where we need to go. And the Grouse Partnership hopes to be part of that uh, solution as we move forward and find ways we can work with a lot of other partners to deliver the conservation that's really needed if we want to keep grouse and grouse hunting as important components of the future of the, of the Great Plains. Yeah, and I'll just add, you know, for your listeners, um, last week, well, actually, earlier this week, President Trump signed the Great American Outdoors Act. Yep. We should all take a moment on this podcast to celebrate that, and thank you to, to all who have made that a reality, working hard for decades. Uh, and with that in mind, I'll say there's a lot of groups now pushing for a Grasslands Conservation Act to focus on grasslands. We had the North American Waterfowl Management Plan for decades that's done wonders for not only stopping the loss of wetlands and, and duck habitat, but even uh, restoring habitats and increasing populations. We need that now for grassland species, and not just grouse. Grassland bird species have declined more than any other group of birds over the last 50 years. Recent research, I think you're nodding your head. Yes, yep. you're familiar with that research. Yep. So, so I would say to all you listeners, keep your eyes and ears open. Groups like uh, National Wildlife Federation and others are championing the idea of a Grasslands Conservation Act. When that window begins to open, you keep your ear to the ground out there, all you hunter conservationists. And when that window begins to open, step through it and help pull in the right direction to make that happen like we just did with the Great American Outdoors Act. One of the most important conservation acts in the last couple decades, the Great American Outdoors Act. Let's make it happen again for grasslands. Yeah, love it. I'm glad you brought that up, Ted. I, I, I actually had it on my list, and we didn't get there. But the website is grousepartners.org. What can folks do? We've got listeners. Maybe they're a landowner. Maybe they're just a concerned upland bird hunter. They want to learn more. They want to get involved. They want to contribute. What can they do? Yep, so they can they can visit our website, become a member of our organization. Um, as John says, we come out with periodicals. We find other ways to, to communicate. Uh, and champion the cause of grasslands conservation. Um, John mentioned there's this grassland summit, which just wrapped up, uh, John, yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a, a consortium of groups from Canada to Mexico strategizing, saying, how do we get our, you know, North American waterfowl management plan for grasslands? So, uh, all of, hopefully all of us who hunt are members of a bunch of different conservation organizations. Get involved with those groups. Again, National Wildlife Federation is really leading the cause on this broader scale effort. So become a member of National Wildlife Federation and look for uh, their communications on uh, Grasslands Conservation Act. Uh, and, and most of all, the reason why the Great American Outdoors Act passed is we had thousands of individuals who cared calling their members of Congress and saying, pass the Great American Outdoors Act. That act 
you as an American calling your congressional representative, I have my one member of Congress and my two senators' phone numbers in my phone, and all I got to do is call it up, hit dial. It takes less than 60 seconds. The assistant picks up the phone, said, yes, I want my senator to, to pass the Great American Outdoors Act. Thank you. We've got it. That's the most effective way to be an American citizen and to affect conservation. Good deal. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, I mean, it was it was on a lot of people's radar, and I think that was had a lot to do with organizations like you guys, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Rough Grouse Society, Feds Forever. Everybody was pushing that and getting after their members, and the end results speak for themselves. I mean, it's, it's that simple. And, and, and what I want your listeners to know is there's a similar movement afoot on behalf of grasslands. And uh, it's very exciting. That's it's very cool. exciting to me. I'm very excited for it. Yeah. So I, I imagine because I'm, you've got my interest. I'm intrigued. I imagine if we if we stay tuned into uh, the North American Grouse Partnership, we will we will be updated on that. Yeah. Right. Good deal. Yes. All right, gentlemen, Ted, John, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me and the Project Upland Podcast listeners. I'd also like to personally thank you for the great conservation work that you do every day. Species that all of us love, are passionate about. Really appreciate that, and if there's anything else we at Project Dupling can do for Grouse Partners, you let us know. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. Quick reminder that this episode was brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA Shotguns, Gumleaf USA, Dogtra Collars, ESP Hearing Protection, Trinity Kennels, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to visit projectupland.com to read, watch, and listen to more great upland hunting content. And please, if you enjoyed this episode of the show, leave the podcast a rating and a review that really helps us out and it helps more people find the show. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Up and Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.